Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. I'm Andy Olivastro, Director of Coalition Relations at the Heritage Foundation, and welcome to our today's webinar, An America Worth Loving, Civics and the Land of Hope. We're very pleased to have Angela Saylor with us, as well as Dr. Wilfred McClay, and we'll introduce them shortly. I want to just tell you a little bit about Resource Bank. Resource Bank is an annual meeting of the Heritage Foundation. We often have it in person. Uh, this year, we've moved it to a virtual format, and we thank you for joining us. It's a gathering of all the leaders of the conservative movement. We have discussions that shape policy, build networks for the movement, and help advance uh, liberty uh, conversations and liberty solutions to the challenges that we face. Uh, I want to give you a couple of pointers for housekeeping purposes. Uh, today's session is being recorded. Uh, the recording will be accessible within about 24 hours on resourcebank.org. Uh, all attendees are in listen-only mode. We encourage your questions throughout the session. And we ask you to use the questions feature on the right-hand side of your screen. Uh, we will not be watching the raise hand feature or the chat feature, so we encourage you to use the question feature. And Angela will get to your questions as best we can throughout the time limit that we have today. Uh, please identify yourself, your name, and your organization so that we can give you a shout out during the session today. And uh, we would also let you know that uh, if you have anything related to the discussion, resources you would like to share with us that we can then share with the broader audience, you can send those to resourcebank at heritage.org. And so I'm pleased to introduce uh, Angela Saylor. Angela is the VP of the Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation. Angela has expansive experience in government, in politics, in the corporate world, and at NGOs and nonprofits. And particularly interesting, she's also served as an adjunct professor for Georgetown University's Continuing School of Education. And so we'll get to hear from Angela her thoughts and questions for Dr. McClay. And Dr. McClay is the GT and, Liberty, and Libby Blankenship Chair of History uh, and Liberty at the University of Oklahoma, where he's also a professor of history. He's the author of many books, and we're joined with, by him today to discuss his latest book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. And with that, I'll turn it over to Angela. Thank you, Andy. Thank you so much. Uh, and to Bridget Wagner as well uh, for all the work that you all do at the Heritage Foundation and to our president, Kay Coles James, for her leadership during this time. We are so glad you could join us today. As you know, America is preparing for its 250th anniversary. All the while, leaders across this nation are concerned about civic knowledge and the transferring of American history to the next generation. Some are even worrying about the story of our nation's founding and its journey to present day. Others are debating the value of learning civics and the importance of activism. But the good news is that scholar and author, Dr. Wilfred McClay, has written a story about America's quest for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
This story is called Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. Dr. McClay's masterpiece received the Conservative Book of the Year Award by, IS, by ISI, Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Land of Hope promises to help us understand and appreciate America. It also promises to help us uphold our duties as citizens, including protecting and defending what we know is so good about our institutions and ideals. And lastly, uh, this masterpiece of Dr. McClay's promises to help us bolster our confidence as members of the society of which we are already a part. Dr. McClay, welcome to our forum. We are so delighted uh, to have the opportunity this afternoon to be able to dialogue with you and hear about all of the work that you're doing uh, towards preserving American history. As I stated, you know, we are, we're headed towards and we're getting prepared and excited about the 250th anniversary of our nation, which is truly a time to celebrate the ideas of individual liberty, representative government, and our unalienable rights. So I am so delighted to turn the program over to you as you, um, and we're looking so forward to having you walk us through some of the pages of what I'm calling your masterpiece uh, and in helping us understand how this wonderful resource will help us as we begin to celebrate the two, our 250 years and beyond. So over to you, Dr. McClay. Well, thank you, Angeline. It's really, really a pleasure to be with you and with all of you today. Um, it's a little strange. <laughs> I'm not used to speaking to a virtual audience, uh, uh, but uh, you're probably not used to listening to virtual speakers, so we're even. Um, I only have a few minutes to, by way of introductory remarks, so let me get right to it. Uh, you know, the, the, the first question to ask about this book is why on earth did I write it? There are all these textbooks out there, many of them much more jazzy, uh, more uh, graphically sophisticated, uh, with uh, big publishers behind them. I have a relatively small publisher. Why did I do this? And uh, really the reason is fairly simple. I felt that the existing textbooks, which have some virtues, um, lack certain important things. For one thing, they're not very readable. That's a pretty basic problem. And they don't convey in a clear way the the essential characteristics of the great American story, as I call it, that, that is there's a fractured quality, some of it ideologically motivated, some of it simply coming out of the, the nature of the professionalization of the study of history, you know, as in so many other things, we have lots and lots and lots of specialists and specialized knowledge doesn't always come together very well and it's not really the job of the specialists to do that. My fear is that we're losing a sense of our history as a public possession, as, as something, as the story that unites us both in terms of our past, but also in terms of our future. To locate yourself in a story 
is uh, an important part of your identity of finding meaning in life. Uh, I was struck, this is long after I wrote the, the book, but I was struck by something I read by Dennis Prager, uh, who, uh, had, he, it was a column sort of with the title, something to the effect of why, why are young people so depressed? <laughs> and, uh, and he has it in the following statement that, I, that really struck me. He said, the reason so many young people are depressed, unhappy, and angry is that the left has told them that God and Judeo-Christian religions are nonsense, their country is largely evil, their past is deplorable, and their future is hopeless. Well, uh, you know, we, we really don't want to, to rest uh, easy in that kind of situation. We shouldn't. We're depriving our young people of their birthright, of a sense of membership, of, of membership in this great experiment, this great story that is rightfully theirs. Uh, they're entitled to it, but they're not going to get it unless they're taught about it. Our sense of civic identity doesn't come to us magically just from the air we breathe. It has to be a part of education. So I saw Land of Hope as being a book that that is, and I think unlike other textbooks, uh, devoted to the civic purpose of the study of history. There's a wonderful essay I just read the other day by Elliot Cohen, Dr. Elliot Cohen of uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, arguing that the, the greatest problem with civic education is that it's become detached from history. And the same is true of history. History's become detached from the enterprise of civics, of thinking about how we, uh, how we act together as citizens uh, on the basis of what institutions, what um, events in our past, what memories that we have to unite us. Speaking of memory, reminds me of the fact that probably the most dreaded disease in contemporary American life, even more so than the coronavirus, believe it or not, is Alzheimer's disease. Um, and Alzheimer's disease is so dreadful in every sense of the word, because it betokens a complete loss of identity. You lose your memory, you lose a sense of who you were, of who you are, of who you will be, and you lose a sense of participating in a common world with others when people come to visit you or you go to visit people suffering from Alzheimer's. As many of you have had this experience, um, it's just tragically poignant to realize the way that they're slipping away from that common life. Well, we're doing the same thing to ourselves um, uh, with, in a collective way by ignoring our history, by um, treating it as something to be anatomized and dissected and, uh, um, and rather than as part of who we are as an, as an inheritance that helps to make up our sense of our past and our present and our future. So, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease is an organic condition for which uh, people bear no blame for contracting. But national amnesia or national uh, memory loss, catastrophic memory loss is something else. If it happens to us, we're to blame. We're at fault. We're the ones who ought to be um, ensuring that that doesn't happen. Now, that doesn't mean, let me hasten to add, um, 
it doesn't mean presenting our national history as 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 a sort of a glorious uh, song filled uh, idol uh, without um, without tragic and even deplorable elements. That's all part of the story, and that's in Land of Hope, uh, in abundance. Uh, one of the things I've been most pleased about in the reviews is has been that, that, that reviewers have found it to be a very even-handed book. Uh, and it is that, but it is the theme of hope is really central. And what I mean by that is that this is a um, this is a country that really going back to as early as you want to go. I even go all the way back to the first uh, uh, immigrants uh, coming across the Bering Straits at the beginning of the settlement of the Western Hemisphere. But that. Um, People have come here with, with the notable exception of those who came in bondage, but people have come here in search of ways to better the, their lives, to better the conditions into which they were born. I think there's no more American principle than the idea that nobody should be confined to the conditions of their birth in the way that they live their life. Um, that's part of what I mean by hope, is that hope is that sense that, that we never have to settle for that, that there's always some other possibility. And, and that this is a land dedicated to the notion that we can explore those avenues of improvement. So um, that, that was uh, my goal in writing the book. I'm very glad that it's uh, communicated with uh, so many readers. It's uh, I'm grateful. I'm actually stunned, <laughs> uh, and and extremely grateful and humbled by it. <coughs> Doctor Doctor McClay, we we thank you for for that insight. You know, um, many have commented on the cover of the book, and oh, you know, thank you for that. saying you can't judge a book by its cover, but. I would I would argue that is not the case when it comes to your book. You want to talk a little bit about um, this beautiful cover and and how it has has really served to invite people to enjoy the content on the inside. Yes. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you brought that up, and it gives me a chance to point out. You'll see on the screen here that there's a teacher's guide, which. It's just about to pop. It's it's the pub date is in a couple of weeks, and uh, um, any of you watching or teachers who want to know more about it, uh, just write to me. And I think we have a page after this one. Don't show it yet, but the page after this one that shows some of what the interior of the teacher's guide will look like. But you no, know, what I was looking for. Let me tell a little story that the, the people that encounter. We have a fabulous designer named Carl. Uh, Scarborough, who uh, I, I really want to shout out to, he did a wonderful job, and uh, he he um, uh, we came up with an initial design was a sort of Grant Wood painting of a beautiful pastoral rural scene, and I said, you know, this is gorgeous, but we can't do this because we don't want to convey the idea that this is a story about the America that was. Um, the, the America that, that maybe was, maybe was didn't even quite exist, but this idyllic past, uh, agrarian and all that. I want something that will give a sense of the energy and dynamism of America, and also something that gives something of the feeling that you have when you walk into a great cathedral 
and suddenly you know you come into the to the main chamber and there's this sense of upward moving space uh and exaltation even uh i wanted something that had a bit of that feel so we looked and we looked and we looked and we finally found this uh painting um uh by a fairly little known um Colin Campbell Cooper, uh, a, a early 20th century painter, um, and uh, it was just it was just right. I, I think if you can see it in person, uh, for those viewers, uh, you'll see what I mean. It really does have that upwardly vaulting sense of energy. Um, so yeah, and it's beautiful pastel colors, and uh, they just the publisher. I can't thank Encounter Books enough for what a great job they did. And then what we've done with the teacher's guide is we have a actually somewhat more somber looking uh, 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 portrait of the of the U.S. Congress building, maybe appropriately somber, um, but by the same painter. So we're we're uh, we're trying to promote him <laughs> indirectly uh, in that. But but yeah, they, they, and I want to thank Encounter. They let me make the pick. A lot of publishers simply take all of that out of the author's hands, but. Um, Encounter let me make the pick in, in both cases. So that, um, I'm very grateful for that. That's wonderful. Why don't we why don't we take a look? You want to give us a sneak preview into the teacher's guide? Um Yeah, I think we have a page coming up that, that shows and for teachers uh what we it's chapter four, uh, which is the Revolutionary War and the aftermath thereof. And uh um uh, that that by the way that type the typeface and the layout is very similar to the book itself um but you'll see what we've got is a summary of the chat brief summary page you know really a page page and a half um questions and answers that go on quite a ways so we, we give you lots of questions and answers uh, you know there are some chapters that have almost 100 questions and answers uh, a lot of work uh doing all of that um because the questions are easy to formulate, but to write the answers, <laughs> that was work even for, for me and my collaborator. So, and then we have objective questions that teachers can make use of. Um, and, um, uh, and, and and by the way, we, we, we often use, I, you know, I don't like objective tests. Uh, every student I've ever had knows that. And, uh, but uh, we often use what we call put in order uh questions which are useful because they test the ability of students to know the sequence of events and you can see on the third page here an example of a put in order exercise and then we have for each chapter we have a document some case more than one document with uh questions and answers that can be used as a primary source exercise so um it's it's a very extensive um, um teacher's guide that we think are going to, is going to be very helpful. We're aiming eventually to go online with the teacher's guide so that we can have videos and lots of other um, bells and whistles uh, that, 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 that may be involved. But this, I think, is a good, good solid beginning. And um, we're very anxious to see how teachers respond to it and whether it helps make it easier for them to make use of Land of Hope in the classroom, because it, it is a very 
different kind of book. I mean, there's, there's, it's, yeah, it doesn't have bullet points in the text. It doesn't, um, it doesn't hold the reader's hand. Uh, it's meant to be a literary um, text. People have asked me what, did I, what would I use for a model, and um, it sounds kind of pretentious, but um, one of the models for for the book for me was Henry Adams's History of the United States, <laughs> uh, which uh, is you know one of the truly monumental works of American historical writing. And uh, um, but uh, the opening of that is uh, to die for to be able to write like that. So I tried I had to set myself that high example uh, in in the, in the composition of this. But above all, I really wanted to make it a literary work because history is ultimately a form of literature. And um, as much as we would like to pretend that it's a science, it can have scientific elements, but it's really a, a, a work of the imagination, the voracious imagination. Uh, Veracious imagination, as Cushing uh, Stroud, uh, a scholar once put it, it, it is a truthful imagination. It's grounded in factuality, but still, you need to do something to bring it to life. And I hope I've managed to do that without sacrificing rigor and, and accuracy. Well, well, truly, the reviews, everyone who's read it would agree that you've done an outstanding job. Um, of of keeping information in its in its wholeness and in integrity, and and to your point of really being able to um, um, create um, a work that is engaging, and we can see that from from the teacher's guide, the sample we see here. When can people expect to to be able to get their hands on this? I think that pub date is May nineteenth, and. Um... Um, and they're they're printing it now, so I'm actually supposed to get an advanced copy pretty soon. But um, it won't be long. And uh, and you know they they people that I see we have a web address for Encounter Books. They can write me at my o Oklahoma address. It's just wmcclay at ou dot edu. Uh, uh, feel free to do that, and uh, um, I'll probably regret doing that. <laughs> uh, but, so I'm, I really want to get this out and I want teachers to be aware because of when, when Land of Hope was published May of last year and I got a lot of wonderful responses from teachers, but always ending with the sort of, I love this book, but I don't know how I'm going to use it in the classroom. I've got you know, help, help me with that. I said, well, you know, we finally decided we had to do a teacher's guide that, that yeah. it was, uh, there were enough teachers dozens of teachers who said this, that we felt, okay, we've got to be responsive to that. So that's what I spent the fall doing, along with my collaborator, John McBride, a wonderful, experienced teacher from uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. So um, couldn't have done it without John, absolutely. Well, well let me ask you, let me ask you a, a follow-up question uh, in terms of, you know, the teacher's guide and how to use it. COVID-19 is obviously on everyone's mind um this this invisible enemy and I, i'm sure that that people would love to hear from you as a historian um the places to go in 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 the book land of hope uh to show and to demonstrate and inspire children at this point in time that we've got a history of innovation and pioneering uh that we can draw on at this point and study to see, you know, that, that this nation has been built 
to, to be able to be resilient. Uh, is there a chapter in the book or, or um, as, you, as you talk about the teacher's guide that you would um, lead people to on this subject? Well, maybe not a particular one, but all through the book, just to deal with epidemics, um, you know, the, the, I don't feature them in a in a strong way, but I but they're there. You know, I point out that the influenza epidemic in, 19, in at the end of the First World War took many more lives than the war itself, and was part of the kind of shock uh, that made. Uh, uh, Warren Harding, his campaign slogan of uh, a search for normalcy, uh, so so powerful that in addition to the enormous shocks of the war, this 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 epidemic, which uh, killed you know relatively few Americans compared to the 50 or 60 million people that it killed worldwide, but uh, but was uh, an enormous blow. But we've had here's something that I think is useful to young people that to hear because we're there's so much gloom and doom about this we're going to have to wear masks for the rest of our lives if we're ever even allowed to go outside and so on and so forth and how can we ever recover and uh, um if you look at the past if you look at the 1793 yellow fever epidemic in philadelphia uh the cholera epidemic epidemics of the 19th century this the flu epidemic epidemic the 1957 fairly recently hong kong flu which killed many more people many more people than the coronavirus is likely to, to kill uh even by the still rather inflated estimates of epidemiologists excuse that little editorial insertion there but um it gives you some perspective we you know i i saw some very respected urbanist who I won't, whom I won't name um, publish an article a few days ago saying, New York City is finished. <laughs> this is somebody who know, should know better that, that uh, we've had, yeah, yeah, maybe we need to rethink some aspects of uh, density as a unqualified good in human settlements. And, uh, uh, it, so on, but you know, New York has been through all kinds of of medical emergencies of all sorts. It's been through 9/11. It's been through uh, um, hell and back, but it's come back. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's really, I, I think, um, um, it, it may be partly because we are our, our own medical knowledge is so much more advanced that we're we're not as willing to just kind of accept that an epidemic is something that, that a viral epidemic is something that probably needs to run its course in its own way we feel so we should be able to prevent it so um these extraordinary measures that we're going through now uh, are, are perhaps the result of uh, of our overconfidence about our ability to uh, thwart um something like this uh, when it comes along. That, but that, who knows, that's not a strictly historical judgment. That's a, that's a common, that's a current events judgment. But, but historically, I mean, we've overcome these things in the past. Uh, human beings have overcome them. It, it's uh, sometimes at great cost. Uh, I, this is not in my book. I wish I could have put it there, but um, 
I recommend to anyone in this audience who has never read it, there's an essay by C.S. Lewis called Learning in Wartime. And it is full of insight. A lot of, a lot of us pulled it out and read it after 9-11. Um, and he, he's trying to make the case for why young men should go to college in 1939, even though uh, this, this hellacious war against Hitler is breaking out. Um, and his, his argument is that we've always, there's no such thing as normal times. We're always, human life, I think I'm quoting directly, is, is lived on the edge of a precipice. And that all that war does is real, be, reveal to us our real condition, which is always perilous. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I say it sound that sounding very complacent. It's always perilous, but it is, it is. And and um, you know we 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 live in a perilous world. We maybe are so comfortable uh, that we've forgotten that, uh, and it's well to be remembered of it, about it. And and then to go on. Um, doing the things we do, valuing the things we value, great literature, great art, great history, um, uh, all the more for a recognition of the tenuousness and perilousness of our existence. And uh, he has a one, I don't want to go on and on about Lewis, but he's a wonderful part of the essay where he says, yeah, you know, the Athenians, um, they developed all these great things during times of war. You know, the age of Pericles is also the age of the funeral oration. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you could say that about many other times and even times like the 19th century, which in 1939, people looked back and said, oh, the 19th century was so peaceful and uh, easy. Uh, no, things are never entirely normal. Yes. Yes. Well, I want to remind everyone that we'd love to have your questions. Um, there is a question and answer box on the right side of your screen, and we'd love to hear from you, uh, your name, your organization that you're that you're with, along with your question, so we can pose those questions to Dr. McClay. Uh, and as we're waiting for a couple to pop up in the queue, Dr. McClay, there's a um, you know, there's this um, weaponizing of history that mm -hmm. we're seeing. And we know this isn't new. Um, you know, we've got Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States and, and more recently, the New York Times 1619 Project. Um, and, um, you know, the Land of Hope, I think, uh, works to recover the humane insight that Hubert Butterfield spoke of when he said that historians should be recording angels rather than <laughs> hanging judges. Um, yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's, it's so current for people and, and it's really yeah. part of, of the debate. Yeah, I know I, I, I favor a way of thinking about the past that is um, that's very slow to award black hats and white hats to particular historical players, but is, is attuned to the complexity of history, the complexity of the decisions that statesmen have to make in the, in, in the, heat, of, in the heat of battle, in the, in, the, in, the, in the arena, as Theodore Roosevelt would say. Um, uh, 
and uh, not to make sort of very rapid um, superficial judgments based on what um, what prevails in the present, as if we were living in the age of ultimate truths. Um, a good example of this is slavery. Uh, that that um, one of the things that the, the, one of the objectionable, the many objectionable things about the 1619 project is it doesn't it doesn't take account of the fact that uh, America was where the first abolition movement developed, and and that there was a um, terrific diversity of opinion um, about slavery, but that that the, the framers of the Constitution is a very good book about this by Sean Wilentz of Princeton that I think uh, makes this point better than I ever could, but that um, they went out of their way to use the language that they used in the Constitution to ensure that there would not be a basis for, as Wilentz said, property in man. That's actually a quote from Madison. Mm -hmm. um, so it does, it, there's no doubt about it. It does protect slavery where it already exists in certain ways, even permits the slave trade to continue for a period and then uh, allows for it to be eliminated, which it was immediately. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so, so there was ambivalence from the start. You know, Thomas Jefferson um, was, yes, a slaveholder. He was also a, an opponent of slavery um, in his own state. Um, it was he who uh, saw to it that the slave trade was, uh, was abolished it, it, the moment it became possible to do it. Um, so there, there is, uh, and uh, one of the things that I think one needs to one needs to just jump into the context and understand what people were working with, how how uh, a change that might to us have seemed you know ne absolutely necessary, imperative to do right now, was politically not possible if the ultimate goal was to create a national union that's going to be able to endure, protect itself, and provide for the welfare of its people. Um, so. Uh, uh, these these kinds of compromises are the, the the warp and woof of real life of real political life. Even someone like Lincoln, often criticized for being, uh, you, know, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was uh, Richard Hofstadter said it was a it was a, a, had the, the moral standing of a bill of lading because it didn't it wasn't a great. Um, magnificent announcement of the rights of man, it was simply designed to begin the process of dismantling slavery, uh, but doing it within constitutional constraints of the presidency as Lincoln understood them. Uh, so it, 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 there wasn't a, a single moment. Lincoln wanted to amend the constitution. That's what happened. Uh, that's how he wanted to do it because he wanted to preserve the integrity and power of the constitution and the authority of the constitution. So uh, uh, there's lots of examples of this, of looking at the way in which um, statesmen have to deal with, and it's certainly, it would do us well today to, to look at our politicians and our statesmen and see them as having to reconcile lots of different contending 
concerns and factions. I think if I may just interject this about today's uh, events, um, one of the things I think we're learning is that you can be an expert, an absolute unquestioned expert about one thing, and yet expertise in that one thing doesn't give you expertise in the whole range of aspects of political and social life, of human existence. So um, uh, I'll let you apply that to the circumstances as, as you wish, but I think it's, it's uh, clearly um, a comment on the way in which um, there are many different goods that contend. Um, this is what people in the Congress have to deal with. Uh, I'm often very hard on Congress, but I think it, it is conscientious um, congressmen and senators like our late Senator Coburn from Oklahoma, who was a really terrific guy. Um, they, uh, they have to contend with the fact that often conflicts are not between uh, good and evil, but between evil and evil or between good and good. And, uh, uh, and, and the, the choices you have available to you are only the choices you have available to you, not what a 21st century high school student can say airily, well, I would have just abolished slavery right at the founding instead of kicking the can down the road. Well, you know, that, that's admirable in a certain way, but um, you, you can only say that if you really don't know anything, if you really don't know anything about the circumstances in which these people were operating, and you don't know that slavery, this is a really hard thing to get across, that slavery was much more the rule than the exception in human history up until uh, modern times, really up till the 18th century, things begin to change dramatically. And, and we're on the other side, as I say in the book, we're, all, we, we're on the other side of a great moral transformation for which thanks be to God, I, I, I'm very glad to be on the other side of that moral transformation, but we shouldn't um, imagine that everyone and everything that existed before us is uh, just a, a, a deplorable parade of horribles um, because it doesn't fit our standards. We may, you know, the Bible says, uh, you know, the measure you use is the measure that you will have used against you. And uh, we should be careful about um, about that, thinking how we will be judged. Well, that that's that. That's a great point. It leads us into a question we have in the queue from your good friend, Sam Gregg at the Acton Institute. Oh, yes. Um, he says to you, um, could you talk about, um, and first of all, he compliments you, great presentation, and says, talk a little bit about American exceptionalism and, and how it fits into the narrative. Well, you know, uh, I, I don't make that American exceptionalism a thematic in an explicit way, um, but it, it, it's, I think it's clear that there are ways in which uh, the United States um, enjoyed exceptional advantages in its development um, it, um, and continues to. I mean, I think really the, the, this notion of land of hope is a, another way of, of expressing what I think is exceptional about this country, that it is there, there, you can kind of unpack it, that there's um, the, the, the notion that 
um, we're undergirded by uh, the idea that people can come here from other places. Uh, imagine that, Australia, <laughs> uh, and uh, can come here from other places and be fully Americans, maybe even in some respects better or more American than the native born. And this is certainly a theme that I bring up several times that um, immigrants, um, you know, immigrations become just the mention of the word it has a bumper sticker like inflammatory quality, but um, you can oppose um, illegal immigration. You can oppose le levels of immigration that, that you think for prudential reasons are excessive, but it's also true that immigration is part of the heart and soul of America. And, um, and that could only be the case. I can think of no other country in the world uh, where it is much the case as it is for us that that being born here, this is great, um, but uh, being naturalized here uh, mm -hmm. with a sense of appreciation of what is different about uh, this country and about the difference in the opportunities that are available to people, um, you know, it, it, it's phenomenal, and mm -hmm. we never put the shoe on the other foot and think, well, you know, if I was, if I were to, I mean, I have friends who have moved uh, to Denmark, uh, Finland, uh, a few other uh, places, and um, they always come away from it, even if they leave America in a very bitter mood, um, they always come away from the experience with a deeper appreciation of the fact that it's easier to come from those countries to America um, and be accepted and in, 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 in a short period of time become a, a kind of a Hyde Park tub thumper for this, this is what American values are, than it is to go the other way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that that is a way in which we are absolutely exceptional. Absolutely. Um, lots well, we, of other things to be said in that answer that question. Too. And to answer Thank that you, question. Well, our time is our time is starting to run a little short, and so I'm going to combine two questions together. Uh, Hannah Frazier writes and and is wanting you to kind of um, give us a little insight into uh, the process of writing your book and if there's a favorite part you enjoyed writing the most. And the and and I'm going to add the second question from Katie Gorka on. Uh, in terms of, as we close out, in terms of um, what should make people, what should make teachers, parents, families optimistic about um, history and civics going forward into our 250th anniversary? Boy, that's hard. There are parts that, uh, the narrative parts that I really enjoyed writing. I really enjoyed the, uh, uh, some of the, World War II and the aftermath, uh, especially the description of VJ Day, that was something I had a lot of fun writing. Uh, and, uh, and and I actually did some some research to kind of capture the the mood uh, uh, with vignettes and that sort of thing. Um, I think what this is going to seem very dry, but I think what pleased me the most in the book is I was able to convey, I think, a sense in which the the Englishness of America, and, and, and by which I mean, I don't mean anything racial or to some extent cultural, but in the sense that that the, the American Revolution 
the Civil War, uh, the, the various conflicts be between those two landmarks, but also the years since the progressive movement and now the effort I think that's underway that those of us who are on the right side of the center uh, think needs to come back to a more constitutional understanding of the nation. We all along, we've been dealing with what I call the problem of federalism. And that is, or you might think of the problem of subsidiarity too. Um, that is how do we divide power and authority in the optimal way so that you could combine the advantages of self-rule, which I see as a fundamental American principle with the advantages of combination. This is something that Madison struggled with quite explicitly. Um, and uh, undergirded a lot of his thinking, but it's been, been there all along. There's a way of seeing the American Revolution as a problem of federalism in the British Empire. And I think, I don't know that this answers your question about optimism, but I think this is the fundamental question uh, of political thought in this century and maybe the next century too, is it, how do we manage this, that, that globalization is is a is a kind it's a big word and I think it's crazy to say I'm for globalization or I'm against globalization. That's that's really uh, it depends. <laughs> but there's some ways in which our world our world's interconnectedness is a beautiful and amazing things. And as the coronavirus shows, there's some ways in which it's dangerous, and we need borders. Um, we need. Uh, and for human flourishing, moving away from disease, but for human flourishing, we need communities that are strong and healthy and then have some sense of their own uh, integrity, their own sovereignty, even that, that maybe that's the wrong word to use, but that they, they are, they stand together as, as some kind of gestalt, some kind of unity. Um, and they're not at the beck and call of uh, something larger than it at, at all moments. Although in some respects they are. That's why we have cities, counties, municipalities, states, uh, regions, nation, you know, all of these different levels of organization. Um, I think the United States is, is more advanced through its history as much as through its political thought in thinking through, experimenting with the possibilities there. It's something that I think our current crop of historians by and large see all of American history moving towards centralization and towards uh, what, what Patrick Henry would call consolidation. <laughs> that is a unitary national government leading to a unitary world government. And this is, uh, this is a pipe dream. Uh, and, and yet we do need to think about ways in which, you know, the EU is another example. The EU, I think, is a failure on its, its current terms. Does that mean there can be no European Union? Of course not. But it needs to be thought in a more, rethought in a more federal way. So I think the United States, we've got to be optimistic because I think we're on the forefront of thinking through this fundamental problem of political thought and political organization. Yeah. Well, again, we have thoroughly enjoyed having you um, oh, and, and, and welcome you back anytime. Uh, and again, uh, to our participants, thank you so much for 
for joining us. And we just want to just kind of recap. Um, Dr. McClay is saying that most definitely we should be optimistic uh, about the future. And there is a rich history um, that we have to celebrate as Americans um, for this great country we call home. And we encourage you to um, get the book for your families, for your children, read the book yourself. Uh, and teachers most definitely use the teaching guide. We think it will enhance um, the experience of the children in the classrooms and also uh, for Americans across the nation. So Dr. McClay, thank you so much for your masterpiece and Thanks. for sharing this, this time with us. And uh, again, we thank everyone for participating. Andy, I am gonna turn it back over to you uh, to close us out. Thank you, Angela, very much. The civics conversation is a focus of the work that you're leading at the Fulmer Institute, and, and we know you're doing awesome work, so thank you for hosting today. Thank you, Dr. McClay. There's no better invitation to the great American story than to participate in this conversation with you, perhaps with the exception of buying your book. And so we're happy to tell everybody listening that it is available at Encounter Books and Amazon and other retailers. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. You know, at Heritage, when we began planning Resource Bank 2020, our theme was Reach Beyond reach beyond the rhetoric, the media, and the next election. And in this virtual format, we find ourselves reaching even further on ideas and principles and in pursuit of solutions. And so we welcome your feedback on sessions you would like to hear and speakers you might like to see. And a survey will reach you by email following this event, but we encourage you also to check out this and other programs at resourcebank.org. I'm pleased to tell you that the next uh, program that we'll do in partnership with the Fulner Institute will be May 14th at 11 a.m., and that will be Teaching American Exceptionalism with David Bob, President of the Bill of Rights Institute, and Jeff Sikanga, the Executive Director of the Ashbrook Institute. So we encourage you to RSVP for that event and also visit resourcebank.org for other programming. And on behalf of everyone at the Heritage Foundation, we hope you stay well and healthy, and we look forward to seeing you soon.